Welcome to the Sing When You're Losing podcast, a podcast designed to help you learn to make the most of every situation. I believe that setbacks and struggles aren't meant to stop us, they're meant to teach us. Across this series, I interview athletes, coaches, managers, trainers, and more so that we can glean from their wisdom and learn from their stories for how to sing when you're losing. In this episode, I get the privilege of interviewing Darren Potter. Darren is a product of the Everton Football Academy and has experienced a great pro career, which currently has him at Tranmere Rovers Football Club. He is also capped for the Republic of Ireland. Darren is one of the nicest guys you could ever meet, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast. I hope you enjoyed our last episode with Mickey Mellon, the manager of Tramir Rovers. And today I'm joined by another Tramir Rover, a current player, Darren Potter. I may know Darren from some of his other clubs as well as, as his international career. Uh, be looking forward to hearing more about all of that as we go. So let's get straight into it. Good afternoon, Darren. How are you? I'm very well, buddy. Yourself? I'm doing really well, thank you. Good. The sun is out. It's 20-something degrees today. For those of you listening in the States, that's actually a good thing. Um, that's mm. not 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but the sun is out, and it's warm, and it's not very Northwest England-like, is it? Not at all, no. Uh, it makes such a difference, doesn't it, when it's like today? Um, We've been lucky, really, haven't we? Some of the some of the weather we've had certainly since this lockdown period. So, oh, the weather since the lockdown, yeah, the weather since lockdown has been uh, it's been a blessing. <laughs> yeah, all of has. this would have been so much harder without the yeah, nice weather. It certainly made it that little bit more bearable, hasn't it? Let's be honest. Absolutely, definitely. So, uh, some of the people listening may know a bit about you. Uh, we only met a few months ago, so um, not too long before the lockdown, actually. So. I don't even know that much about you, so I'm really looking forward to, to hearing more about you and, and your career and what's going on with you now. Could you just start by telling us a little bit about your background? Where are you from? And I know you played for Ireland, so what's your, what's your link with Ireland as well? Yeah, well, obviously, as you can probably tell by the accent, I'm born and bred in Liverpool. Um, Grew up only, you know, five minutes from Anfield and Goodison. Nan and Grandad live right around the corner from Goodison. Mum and dad still live around the corner from Anfield. Um, so, you know, it was a very much football orientated background growing up, playing day in, day out on the streets. Nice. Um, so, yeah, that's obviously born and bred right in the city centre. And then obviously the connection with, with the Republic of Ireland came on my dad's side. His mum and dad were, were from Dublin originally, um, Republic of Ireland. And yeah, just obviously as my career kind of, you know, started moving forward and I got to around 16. I was asked to, to represent the under 16s of the Republic of Ireland. So that, that was the, that's the path that led me that way, really. Great. So what got you into, like, did, did you always know you were going to play football? You, you got, you know, you got the contract when you were 16, but when did you start and was that always your dream? Yeah, I think, you know, like like most want-to-be footballers, it just starts from the moment you can walk, really. And, you know, playing football just became just became the norm. It was an every, everyday part of life. Um, you know, people always ask you that question, when did you know you were going to become a footballer? I don't think you can actually say for sure until you luckily enough, you know, sign that first contract, which for me was, was a 17-year-old at Liverpool. 
but you know, as I say, you know, growing up day in day out, it was it was football from beginning of the day to the end of the day till your mum shouted you in for your tea and you just wanted that extra ten minutes to stay out and it was going dark. But that was just life for us growing up. Yeah, it's a great football city, isn't it, Liverpool? It is, yeah. So you signed that contract at seventeen. Uh, were you always? Did you always play for Liverpool? Did you have other clubs that you played for before you got? Yeah, I um, I was at Everton from when I was ten years of age. That was that was the first club I went to. Um, I was playing for people that, that do know Liverpool well in the Scotland Road Junior League, which is where I lived really. And you know it was a very competitive league with some really good young lads playing. And that's where I got luckily got spotted uh, by Everton as a as a ten year old, I guess. Um, so I went for trials with Everton. Again, signed a contract at Everton and ended up staying there till I was fifteen and a half, I think, before before I actually left Everton. Um, you know that that was a case of the next year would have, you've been going into a scholarship year, a two year scholarship, and I think out of the age group I was in, there was only two lads who actually got kept on. And the rest of us were all released at the same age, same time. Um, but luckily enough for me, at the same time, I was also captain of Liverpool schoolboys, representing the city team for a two-year period. Um, so there was always scouts watching and everything. And and, and luckily enough for me, uh, a great man called Jim Aspinall, who who worked for Liverpool, no longer with us now, but he he saw me playing a game and asked me to to come up to Liverpool, and and that was it really. Nice. So the magic question, uh, I generally know this before the podcast, I don't with you. I'm taking a guess, but who's your team? Who do you support? <laughs> I've had so much stick about this, you know, over the years, because as a kid, I was Liverpool growing up until I got to about teenage years. I started going to watch Everton a bit more. And then I fluctuated. I was going watching the two because they were both on my doorstep and I was lucky enough to, to go and watch both. So as I kind of got towards a pro I was more of an Everton fan really than, than a Liverpool fan although I, I was at Liverpool I was training at Liverpool um, so I kind of tell people I follow both of them and I get so much stick for not nailing my colours to the mass so <laughs> it just is what it is well I, I it's a brave decision for all sorts yeah. of reasons uh, one you are supposed to be red or blue that's just yeah. the way the city works um, but two to still claim to be an Everton fan under the current circumstances. Yeah, that's the hardest part. That's, that's, no, I've, got, I've got a real strong affiliation with both clubs. I mean, I'm, yeah. strangely, again, strangely, I'm desperate to see Liverpool win the league. You know, they've, they've not won the league for 30 years. Um, and, you know, it's so close now within the grasp. And I, I want them to see them lift the, the league trophy as much as anybody else, I've got to be honest. Yeah. Everton haven't won anything for nearly 30 anything. years. <laughs> no, I know. Strange. Heartbreaking. The two sides of the coin out of them two clubs, <laughs> but two great clubs nevertheless. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, signed uh, at 17 for Liverpool. Yeah. And what happened from there? Well, I've, I remember the day I signed the contract like it was yesterday. Um, Steve Iway, another great man at Liverpool. Um, you know, I got in the office with, with him and my mum and dad were with me and, you know, he said, this is your first professional contract and it was just amazing, you know, to, to sit there with somebody like him. Even now, obviously, Steve, and I have seen him a few times even in the last few years, is just the aura and the presence of the man is incredible and he just still strikes that little bit of fear into you because um, he, he never let you get too close, Steve. He always had you at arm's length, but uh, he's just a great man. So, to sign that contract at 17 was 
something I've been working towards for the whole of my life. So it was special. Yep. Amazing. And then how long were you at Liverpool? Yeah, I think, I don't think I left Liverpool until I was around 21, was it, when I eventually left. I mean, I had a loan spell um, to Southampton. That was just, that was my first loan spell. So that was my first real taste of proper football. Southampton had just been relegated from the Premier League the season before. So they were now playing the trade in the Championship. So I went there in the January time till the end of the season. And that was, that was great for me because it was a real eye-opener as to what football is about, really. You know, I'd only really been playing reserve team football at Liverpool and stuff. And and although at the time, you know, the reserves was a really good, strong league because you had the teams that you played against would generally have fully-fledged professionals playing week in, week out to get the match fitness up. And it's not like now where you've got, you know, under 23s football and it's kind of a bit diluted, really. It's not a real taste of the, of the real stuff. But back then it was. So, yeah, it was, it was that loan spell at Southampton, which was my first kind of step away from Liverpool. I don't think you, you didn't know it at the time. You just think, oh, this is a chance to go and get football and come back and then see what I can do here. But sure. as you look back now, it's kind of, it was probably the first step to, to moving on and making your own way in it, really. Yeah. So you had the loan spell and yeah. then what? I came back then and then there was another loan spell. Um, I went to Wolves. Mick McCarthy was the manager. I got wind of there was interest that he wanted to take me on loan. He came to the academy and watched me play in, I suppose it was a reserve game at the time, played in that. And it was straight after that, he, you know, again, I got wind that year. He, want, he wanted to take me on loan. So I went to Wolves. I think initially it was, it was going to be a, a season-long loan. Um, that was the plan because I still had time left on my contract at Liverpool. But then I'm sure it was only five, six months into it. And Mick asked me would I make it a permanent move, which was, you know, it was it was decision time really, it was crunch time, cut me ties with Liverpool and start making my own way or um and, and that's obviously that that's what I done. I decided after asking the people closest to me what was the best thing to do for my own career moving forward. Look, Liverpool's such a big club with some incredible players, you know, to to make your way at a club like that, you, you do have to be, you know, cream of the crop. So it was always going to be really difficult, although you know, very proud of the the times I did represent the club and pull the shirt on. It was a big it was a big um, decision for me to leave, but you know that's that's what I did and and moved to Wolves. Great. So, when did you first cap for Ireland? I think it was around the time I was playing for Wolves. So, um, well, you're testing me now today. I'm I'm maybe around about 2007. Maybe I'm guessing there. Yeah. Maybe, maybe round about then, yeah. I played at all the age groups from under 16, 17s, 18s, 20s, 21s. So I went right through the whole system then and then eventually you know, got into the first team, which was amazing. Yeah, so I, I've wondered what is the difference between club-level football and international-level football? Just for you as a player, what, what, what really stands out for you? I think it was just obviously... Because looking back at that time, everybody, even in the league, played four four two. Everything was just four four two, two front men up top. It, these systems of you know people playing in the hole and number ten or three at the back, they were more seen as a continental, European, international thing. So that was one of the things I do remember. Because the first trip I went away with um, with Ireland with the first team was a, a a US tour in the summer, and it was just for two games. And we played against uh, we played against 
Bolivia um, in Boston and we played Ecuador at the Giant Stadium in, in New York in Jersey. Very and, nice. Yeah, it was. It was a great experience, especially for me first time as well. But just to see that different style of play and how, how they approach games and where they play, play. It wasn't just you up against another midfielder and two centre-backs playing against two centre-forwards. The, you know, the movement and the way teams were so fluid was such a different level to what I've been used to. So a lot of learning there then. Yeah, well, you're learning on the job, aren't you? You know, there's yeah. no... Um, you, you, once, you get, once you make it as a pro, you're thrown into the deep end. And as I say, you're learning on the job every day. What's the difference, if there is any, in the fan support? So from international fans to club-level fans, is there, is there any difference? Um, I, I think it depends who you ask. I think Liverpool supporters support Liverpool more than they support England. Um, that is for sure. Yeah. And I think that would be the same for, for a lot of clubs, to be honest. You know, your club is your club. I know I'm saying I'm splitting half, I'm half red, half blue. But for most people, your club is your club. And, you know, you do anything for them. And you watch them week in, week out, whether they win leagues or they're not winning leagues, they're getting relegated, they're getting promoted. People stick by them left, right and centre. Um, and I think it's just that buzz of, you know, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. Whereas with, with the international, you know, your big tournaments, they're only coming around every four years, aren't they? And the games throughout the season are only few and far between. So I think that it, there certainly is a difference between country and club, how people support them. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, move away from those questions and we'll come back to some of that in a minute. Yeah. But uh, I want to know, um, let, let's talk a little bit of do this with all of the guests, most of them anyway, uh, some of your friends that have been on the podcast. Outside of football, yeah, uh, I think you like your golf. I do. Yeah. So uh, let's just have a few questions about that okay. and uh, see if there's any overlap in, in what some of the other guys have said. But uh, who is the best football golfer that you've ever played with? Ever played with? Yeah. Um, well, I've been on a few clubs where I hadn't played with certain people who were meant to be spot on, like, Jimmy Bullard came to MK Dons for a short period at the end of his career and he's meant to be really, really good but I don't think I had the pleasure of playing with him. Uh, when I was at Wolves, there was a goalkeeper, Michael Oakes, who played off, I think he was a scratch golfer there or thereabouts. So I, I don't think I've really had the pleasure of playing with the best ones because I wouldn't put myself in that category. Uh, so I know you know Mella really well, Neil Mella. So me and Mel's have had plenty of games over the years with our yeah. group of friends from Liverpool. So, But I played with a lad that and Neil would not qualify as the best golfer. No, I wouldn't put him down as the. No, he definitely wouldn't be the best. Um, but he certainly improved, I think, since he's retired. He seems to be on the course every day. He's out there a but, lot. Um, yeah, I played with a lad called Neil Collins at Wolves, actually. And Neil was, Neil was very good. He could hit it a long, long way. Um, so I think I'd put Neil up there, really, as, as one of the best ones. He's Tampa Bay Bradley's manager now as well. So okay. he's quite well for himself. Very good. Uh, the flip side of that, Name names, it's fine. Shame people. Who's the worst golfer, or, or at least the ugliest swing? Well, I think we've just touched with. on him. Mel's isn't pretty, <laughs> is it? It's not pretty, so I'll have to put him in there. But I've played with some bad golfers, but I think to name somebody would be tough. Really, I don't, I don't know. I'm speaking like I'm the best golfer in the world myself. Yeah, I'm far from it. So, 
Well, you didn't you didn't come up in uh, in Neil's uh, best or worst. Oh, okay, so that's good. Enough. You're in the you're in the middle there somewhere. Good. Um, Neil, however, did come up with Chris Kirkland as one of the worst as well. As one so, of the worst. Oh, no, okay. no, as Chris named Neil as oh, right. okay. one of the worst, particularly his putting stroke. Yeah, not pretty. Which is really more like a, he's holding a hockey stick. That's what it looks like. <laughs> you played with Neil, haven't you? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is uh, is is putting? Is it pretty? But we won't do that again because we did that with Chris, and I don't want Neil to get his feelings hurt. So those are your your favorite, your your best and worst golfers. Let's talk about managers for a minute. Who's the best manager in terms of man management that you've ever played for? I think from a selfish point of view, somebody that worked the best for me, and I probably played me best football, and there was Carl Robinson at MK Dons. You know, I spent six brilliant seasons there. Loved every every minute of it, um, and a big part of that was down to Carl, really, just as as man management style, the style of play he wanted the team to play, uh, how he coached. You know, his general knowledge of the game as well was was very very good. You know, he's had a real good background of of being a coach coming through at Liverpool. Spent a lot of years with with the youngsters and the kids, and then moving on and. Um, you know, he's under Sam Allardyce at Blackburn and just just a great array of different bits he's got and he's seen and um and he was he was just excellent for me and, and the club in general really while while he was there. I mean look I've I've been lucky to work with some some really, really good managers along the way, but as I say, just from that point of view of the relationship me and Carl had as well, it was really strong at the time for the whole six year period. We had some some terrific times, some great memories along the way, you know, with promotions and, and big cut wins against like like some Manchester United and just things that'll will stick in, in the memory forever, really. Great. On that note, what is what, is there one highlight of your career, one thing that really sticks out? It probably it probably have to be running out at Anfield for the first time. I just don't think you can eclipse it. I mean I've done Again, you know, I have got some some good personal things along the way, um, but I think take take me back to that really running out at Anfield, just listening to that music as you come out and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, and and then I think also from from a point of view of your family as well, knowing what it means, seeing mum and dad who are who are in the crowd and the rest of your family watching on the TV and just the millions watching worldwide because you just know what that club means to so many people. Yeah. Yeah, you're not the first person to mention that as as the highlight of yeah, the career. I I'm just sure. couldn't I imagine. <laughs> no, no, couldn't imagine what that would be like. Thinking of players you've played with, who's the best player that you've ever played with in a team? Um, again, I played with some really good ones, like latterly Deli Ali coming through at, at MK Dons, and you know has gone on to be one of the finest young midfielders in world football right now. I played with a guy at uh, Wolverhampton Wonders, Jay Bothroyd, who who got an England cap as well. Jay was excep- an exceptional talent, really, really talented lad. Um, but again, I, I, you know, you, it's it's one of those things when you've when you've represented Liverpool, it's hard not to keep going back to that. And because of the things you've seen there and the people that are in that club at the time, and um, you know, I was luckily enough to be around that squad and, and Stephen Gerrard was there and the guy was just absolutely immense. You know, to train, to train, the, the people I was there with in that midfield was 
Steven Gerrard, Xavi Alonso and Dietmar Hamann. I couldn't have wished for a better, you know, grounding and seeing how these people operated day in, day out. It was absolutely phenomenal. But there's no doubt about it, Stevie was he was head and shoulders for me better than anybody I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, incredible to play in that midfield. <laughs> Unbelievable. What was it for you? What was it about Stevie G that made him Obviously, his technical ability was very good, but was there more than that? He, he had everything. He was bigger than you was. He was stronger than you was. He was faster than you was. He could pass the ball better than you was. He could score a 30-yard goal. It was just the whole lot, his tackling ability. Um, he was just phenomenal. But like I say, I think that was the biggest eye-opener because when you're coming through at the academy, everybody technically is very good. Everybody know, learns how to pass the ball really well when they're at coming through at Liverpool you know you see that now with Trent Alexander-Arnold I mean not everybody can do that as well as him but that's the ground and he's had coming through the academy and we all got that ground and coming through it was it was a big part of our life knowing how to control the ball and pass the ball properly now to some people that might sound strange but we worked on that so hard day in day out using the right technique both feet um, and like I said Stevie had that in, you know in abundance but it was just the other side, how strong he was, how fast he was, how quick he closed people down. You know, in the early years, you wouldn't go by him 1v1. He played right back quite a lot of times for the first team as well in his early stages. And he didn't look, he could have been the best right back in the world. He was he was just that good in everything he had to do. Yeah. I think his pace is one of the things that he was underrated for. Very. I, don't, I don't think people understood. Yeah. No, certainly people didn't understand and I, I don't think I understood it until, like I said, he, he, you know, he comes charging down to chase you down or whatever. But like you say, even in a foot race, he was, he was away and gone. He was so quick, had such a big, long stride. He was yeah. light and quick. Would you call him a leader? And if so, what were the traits that stuck out with him that made him a leader? I think he was more the typical lead by example. And I think sometimes you, you hear that and you think, well, that's how does he lead by example? Well, in the things that he does, but it's hard to follow because you can't do what he's doing. So in that respect, it's difficult. I think when I, again, when I was at the club, you had Jamie Carragher there, who was without doubt the most vocal. You know, you would hear his voice above everybody else's. Um, I think Sammy Appier at the time was club captain as well, just as I, as I made that step from the academy to to Melwood uh, just before Stevie got the captaincy. And again, Sammy was more, he was vocal, but he wasn't as vocal as, as Cara was. And he, and he certainly led by example. And I think that's, that's definitely the best trait Stevie had. He just showed you the right things to do, how committed he was, how much he wanted it, the way he passed the ball, the way he, he was just showing you what he wanted from everybody else by setting that example. Yeah, that example is... is the best way to lead isn't it absolutely yeah did you ever feel because when you when you're talking about the best in a sport you know stevie g was one of the best at the time uh it's easy like you said you know i can't do everything he's doing so one option there is then to say i quit you know it's, i i can't do that i'm never going to be as good as he is so i give up or the other option is to attempt to raise your game in order for you to become the best you can be. And so what was your mindset when you would see him? I think like you've, it was the latter. You just, you just want to improve in all the other areas because ultimately you knew with 
with him, he produced that extra bit of magic, like the FA Cup final goal, Olympiacos, the Champions League. He was just that extra bit of difference. So he was dragging everybody else up to a level which was acceptable for him. But then he knew he had more. And I think that's why, ultimately, he, he dragged the, the team and that club over the line time and time again while he was there. Yeah, yeah. Must be great playing with someone like that. Another question then. Who is the best player that you've ever seen in training? And you thought, wow, absolute world beater in training, but could never quite do it on match days. Cool. Um, well, that is a tough one. Has everyone been honest with this or what? Um, Kirky was no. very honest. Was really? Mel's, Mel's was more diplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> I think I might go down the diplomatic route here. That, that's a tough one. I mean, I think there is a case of many players on the training grounds who day in, day out, you know, you do see things and you think, Jesus Christ, but then come to a game, they just, they just don't hit them same levels. And as to why, I'm not really sure whether it's the pressure, um, you know, is probably, probably the main reason. But yeah, I, I've, seen, I've certainly seen plenty of players who, who give a lot more on the training grounds and showed a lot more than they did on the pitch, I'll say that much. We've talked about your highlights and you've, you've had some great ones, uh, you know, walking out at Anfield, your playing career at uh, MK Dons, your playing for Ireland. You know, there's some great highlights there. What would you say was the biggest kind of low point or uh, disappointment of your career? I think without question, injuries aside, which I haven't suffered many injuries, but I did suffer one um, Achilles ruptured a few seasons ago, which you know clearly wasn't nice and was a bit of a major setback in, in my career going forward. But I think on, on the probably the the most disappointing moments was getting relegated with Sheffield Wednesday in the 09-10 season. Um, that was a real, a real tough one to take. I mean, I'd only sat, I'd gone on loan there as well. Um, from I'd been at Wolves for three seasons, and by the end things had, had changed, and I wasn't really getting getting into the team. And I went on loan to Sheffield Wednesday. Um, for three months at the end of the season from the January till the end of the season and I think I played 13 or 14 games in that loan spell scored after 15 minutes at the cop end on my debut against Charlton we beat them 4-1 and it was just brilliant I absolutely loved it I think I got two or three goals in that 14 game 13-14 game spell and Brian Laws who was the manager at the time asked me to make it permanent so the following season I'd signed a, a three year deal at Sheffield Wednesday and the first year I was there, we got relegated. And it was it was such a bitter pill to swallow because we had a really good squad. And I don't think anybody had envisaged us, you know, being relegated. Um, you know, we, we got off to a, an OK start. We, we had a rocky period before Christmas, I think it was, where we, I don't think we won no wins in 12 or something like that. And we were just continually going down and, uh, Brian Laws eventually got the sack, unfortunately, and, and Alan Irvine took over. Alan had been at Preston, I think, the season before. Uh, Alan came in and made a real impact, and I think we won three or four out of the first four or five he took over, and you're thinking things have changed here now, and we've turned the corner. But 
it just wasn't to be. And unfortunately, it, it went all the way down to a last game decided against Crystal Palace, which got, uh, which which was a Sky TV game. I think they only needed a draw to stay up. We needed to win uh, to to secure uh, our status in the league. And and unfortunately, it wasn't to be, and we didn't do enough, and we were relegated, and that was that was so tough. And it was actually I seen it on on. Uh, on a YouTube clip not so long ago and it, I still felt the pain of it even to this day that was a real bitter pill to swallow so obviously football's a team sport you know there are 11 of you out there on the pitch at a time yeah but for you personally what did that relegation do to you how did that make you feel what how much of that blame do you take on yourself rightly or wrongly oh yeah I think for sure I think you know the most people would have looked in the mirror and said, you know, what could I have done more throughout the whole season? Like you said, it is a team game. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of people who obviously play a role within that. Um, but I think ultimately you always look at yourself and, and ask yourself, what else could you have done better? Uh, I know I certainly did that. But then, you know, again, from, from a selfish thing for me, it was we'd been relegated to League One and I hadn't been in League One before. So it throws up all kinds of different emotions of, of what's going to go next, what's going to happen with the club, you know, who's going to, is the manager going to stay, is going to go, what happens now with certain players, because obviously we had some some players who were assets who, who should have still been playing higher in the division, in the divisions above. So it just throws the whole summer into disarray, really, and you go away thinking, not really sure what's coming next. And it, it just puts a whole, a whole downer on, on your summer um, until... You know the preseason comes around, then and you you bite the bullet, you get back into work, and and you go again to try and put things right. The podcast is called "Sing When You're Losing." You know the it comes from when I started going to football matches in England when I moved here a while back now, and the the fans would sing to the other side. You only sing when you're winning. Yeah. Uh, and that really resonated with me. And so this the idea of seeing when you're losing is learning to make the most of the bad situation. Yeah. To, to keep learning all the time. So for you, was there, was that an opportunity for learning and for growth? Uh, were you able to, how long did it take you to be able to maybe change the perspective from complete disappointment? Did you go back into training full speed or did you go back with your head down? Yes, yeah, certainly for me, it was, um, it was a case of growing as a person. I think like you've just mentioned, you know, you have that summer period with your family where, you know, you go away on holiday and reflect on what's what. Um, but then for, for somebody like me who just loves the game, it was just always, come on, let's get back. Let's get, you know, put things right. And training can't come quick enough then because, you know, you, you want to put that behind you as quickly as possible. Uh, so that, that's what I remember. That's certainly something I've done. You're working hard then in the off-season, ready to, to go again on that first day of pre-season. And, and like I said, you know, you, you're trying to put things right. But, you know, I think we went back there with, with Sheffield Wednesday and it took a few years then before the club actually got back to the championship. I, I'd left by the time they eventually um, got promoted back. But, but what an absolute unbelievable club with great fan base. It's just, it, it is a huge club and people talk about sleeping giants, the likes of Leeds and Sheffield Wednesday certainly falls in that category. An absolute brilliant place to play football. 
you are at Tramere now. Yep. At least for the time being. Um, yes. <laughs> everything is a bit up in the air at the minute, isn't it? So how are you feeling about all that? Well, we're in uncharted waters really, aren't we? I think, you know, anybody in all walks of life are a, a little bit uh, not really sure what's around the corner. I know, obviously, I, I only signed the one-year deal with with Tramia, so, you know, officially my, my contract runs out 30th of, of June. Um are we going to be playing football by then? I, I don't. I don't really know. I think hopefully we'll we'll know more within the next next week or ten days or so. I think it seems to be dragging on so long now, trying to find the right solution. I'm fully aware it's a you know it's a, a tough ask to try and come up with the right solution because you can't please everybody. That's one thing for sure. Um, so yeah, it's like I said, it's it's strange times. I, I never thought I'd ever be in this situation where the season had been stopped halfway through and we're wondering what's going on. But I think the bigger picture is there's certainly far more to life than football. And we see how many people have, have lost their lives, not only in this country, but across the world. I think it puts a, a lot of things into perspective. And ultimately, sport is only is only a game at the end of the day. So I think we should be more grateful for what we have got and instead of looking for what we haven't got and what's around the corner. You know, I've got, obviously, a, a great wife and four four young children, so... I'm enjoying a lot of time with them at the moment. So as I say, I think you should just be grateful sometimes for what you have got. Yeah. So what are you doing to keep yourself busy then during lockdown? Well, obviously I'm keeping myself fit. That's the main thing, doing plenty of running. Um, half of my garage is, is a gym. So, you know, I'm lucky I've got a bit of space there with a treadmill and a few bits and bobs that I can use. Doing some road running, getting out on the bike, doing some bike work. So I'm keeping myself as active as I can. Obviously, with the kids, you know, in the garden most days, trying to keep them active, going out for plenty of walks. So we're certainly not uh, sitting around being couch potatoes, that's for sure. We're making the most of, of the good weather as best we can, under the guidance of the government, obviously, following <laughs> all, the, uh, all the rules and social distancing. So, yeah, we're making the most of it, the best best that we can of, of what is not a great situation. But, um, you know, we're all in the same boat, aren't we, right now? Absolutely. I may have heard through the grapevine that you are doing a course of some sort as well. Is, is that true? Yeah, I've just completed the course last week. It was at a football marketing course. So it's, it's more about what goes on outside of the, the squad, so to speak, with the people you know, in the marketing, like it says, and how you create sponsorship for the club and, and things like that. So, yeah, I've done that. That was over the course of four or five weeks, a bit like this. It was a Zoom call with... Uh, you know, plenty of, of players who are playing now, a couple of ex-players on it as well. So that was quite interesting. Um, bit of an eye-opener, really, to see to see the other side of, of the game, really, I suppose. So that, that was good, yeah. Obviously, if you don't mind me saying, you're, you're closer to the end of your career than yeah. you are the beginning of your career. Um, you've had a nice long career. Which is great. Not everyone gets to play as long as you have, with no. as few injuries as you've had as well. You talked about your Achilles, but you know you, you've you've done pretty well um, in terms of not having the major injuries. But the time is coming. So, what do you see as your kind of? Do you, do you have the goal? Do you know where you're going? Do you, do you have? Do you see the challenges that might be coming? I think certainly over the last 
the last couple of years, um, you, you kind of do feel as though the end is not too far away. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I still feel fit. I'm fine. I want to continue playing as, as long as I can. I think, you know, most pros will tell you that. You're, you're certainly a long time retired. Um, so, you know, I've got no plans at the moment to retire, that's for sure. But I think in, in the future, you know, coaching's always been a big interest for me. Um, you know, I was I was hoping to get on the UEFA license uh, this summer, actually. Well, it should have been taking place now, really, in May. But uh, obviously, that got abandoned due to, due to the COVID-19 crisis. So, that would have been nice to, to have gotten on that. Um, you know, I'd done me, me B license probably four, four or five years ago now. So it, it certainly, it is always something I've thought about. It's probably certainly since I started, you know, my Achilles injury, I only I only ruptured it just over two years ago now, but I, I had suffered uh, Achilles problems for a long time, even while I was playing, probably the best part of six or seven years, which I, I was managing daily on a daily basis. You know, it was it was fine, but I'd had plenty of injections in it and stuff. And so I, I think I kind of knew quite early on that coaching was, was kind of where I saw the next part of my career going. So things all being well, that, that would be something I definitely want to go into um, in the next stage. Once, once the boots finally get hung up, whenever that, whenever that may be, hopefully it's, it's not anytime soon. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're looking very fit. Thank you. And uh, yeah, yeah. I know you're still working hard, so that's good. Yeah. So, but as you again, as you think, as you're thinking about the future, and and you said no player ever really wants to really think about that much <laughs> as they're playing. As you put it, you're a long time retired. You've still got well over half your life to go. Yeah. Um, why? Just relating that to sort of some of the mental health problems in football at the minute. And it's been really well documented over the last couple of years, I guess, the struggle that a lot of players are having. Well, why do you think players struggle so badly with that kind of coming towards the end of their career and then in retirement? Um, I can only, you know, I'm obviously guessing as to what people are feeling, but I think one thing that this sport and this life gives you is, is routine. Ever since, you know, even if you're when you're an academy player, you know your timings of when you've got to be there, the days when you're not there, when you become a pro, what time you've got to be in the morning, you know what time you're going to train, you know what time you're going to eat. Um, you know, we're, we're lucky in, in this job and, and this sport that everything's laid out for you. All you have to do is turn up and perform, obviously, but you, you basically just have to turn up and, and everything's kind of there on, on a plate for you. And I think, I'm assuming that's what, a lot of people would miss. Obviously, you have, you know, that people are, you heard a lot of ex-pros saying, oh, you know, I miss the dressing room banter, just that, that social of being around the lads day in, day out, and, you know, which, which you don't get at home because it's different. You have a wife and you have kids and, you know, things that happen in the dressing room don't happen in the house. So, good. yeah, yeah, sometimes, <laughs> but most of the time, that's a good thing. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think there is a lot of challenges for players, I think the other thing is the money stops. You know, that's a that's a big part of everybody's life is, is the job they do. They earn a certain amount of money. So I think that can uh, have an effect on people. But um, yeah, I think like you've just said, you know, it's, it's certainly become a prevalent topic of conversation within the last couple of years. And it's probably a shame that it has only been the last couple of years because it's, it's certainly been around for, for a lot longer than that. I think certainly in, in an all male dominated sport, 
you know, playing in a man's team with 20, 25 of the men in the dressing room, there's always been a bit of a stigma around it, I suppose. You know, people don't want to be seen as being weak or, you know, what's up with him. And But you don't know what's going on in people's lives behind behind closed doors. Everybody's facing their own challenges. Um, and I think it is good that now you see people, you know, and, and not just people you're looking at like Tyson Fury, one of the biggest sportsmen in the world. And, you know, he, he's so open about it and tells you, you know, what he's gone through, where he's been. I think we've all seen the pictures of, what was he, 10 stone heavier, you know, only 18 months, two years ago, whatever it was. And, and to see how a guy can transform his life is just, it's got to be a positive for everybody, I suppose, you know, for people who are, who are feeling down and feeling low. I think, you know, there certainly is, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the weather, how good it is, you know, you've got to get yourself up off the couch and take yourself for a walk, whatever it will be, and, and try and do something that will stimulate the brain and, and you know, you not let not let things run wild inside your head. Very good, very true. So, if people wanted to continue to follow the career, the life of Darren Potter, where can <laughs> they do that? <laughs> well, I don't really do social media, so other than Instagram, I'm, I do a bit of Instagram, but other than that, I'm I'm nowhere to be seen on social media, Twitter, Facebook, so. I guess you can't follow me, really. Can't follow you. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. No, so, yeah, no, I'm quite. Um, it's never really been one for me. The social media stuff. I've kind of always kept myself to myself as much as possible. So, that's just how it is. Fantastic. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been really good talking to you. A Brilliant. No, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for asking. It was a oh. pleasure to do it. Yeah. No. Thank you for your willingness. And uh, we will, I'm sure, catch up with you again very soon. No problem. Thanks, buddy. All right. Cheers, Darren. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Sing When You're Losing. Please look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere you find your podcasts. If you found this helpful, please spread the word as well. And don't forget to subscribe or to check back for next week's exciting conversation. Until then, always sing when you're losing.